David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Elliot, we're going to have another great show today. We're going to have on my favorite player of all time growing up. I remember watching him play. This guy was absolutely incredible until he broke my heart in 84 when the, pod, <laughs> when the Padres beat the Cubs in uh, the playoffs. Former baseball star Steve Garvey. We're going to have Greg the Bull Lezinski. But let's get right to our first guest, Steve Garvey. How are you doing today, Mr. Garvey? Great. You're going great until all of a sudden, you know, you, you kind of uh, went backwards there a little bit. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. You start to relive that path. Uh, <laughs> That, that's what Cub fans do. That's true. You know, it, it's interesting. <laughs> you know, who knows how many thousand days since that uh, game four and a walk-off home run? But I think most of them, a Cubs fan has come up and said, "How could you do that to us? You know, you seem like a nice guy." And, <laughs> and I always look at him and go, "Hey, Lee Smith hit my bat. You know, I, I like Chicago. You know, I've had a business there." And <laughs> everybody starts to laugh. You know, so it's just one of those moments in time, and unfortunately for you guys, it happened to be against the Cubs. One of your best acquisitions was from Wheaton, though. Absolutely, Candace Garvey. Uh, we've been married uh, over 25 years now, and and uh, you know she's not afraid to say she's. Always a Cubs fan. <laughs> Once a Cubs fan, always a Cubs fan. And there have been times, you know, I was almost a Cub. I was, when I was a free agent and after the 82 season, I, uh, um, went to five different places and to negotiate. And when I was in Chicago there with Dallas Green, it looked like I was going to be a Cub and things kind of, um, you know, didn't materialize at the end and I moved on, but Dallas had made up a, Cubs jersey with Garvey six on the back and uh, and didn't think anything about it, you know, went on to New York and then eventually signed uh, with the Padres and Ray Kroc. And about three years ago, four years ago, I guess, my sister-in-law saw it on eBay and she paid something like $2,000 for or something, gave it to my wife for Christmas. And then uh, if you remember a few years ago, the uh, Dodgers played the uh, Cubs in the first round of the playoffs and, and she wore it very proudly at Wrigley Field. So, <laughs> and it was in the Sun Times, I think. Right. So, right. Uh, so she's always a cub. It's one of those priceless items, right? Absolutely. I remember I was, let's see, in 83, I was 12 years old, and I used to write to Dallas Green. I wrote him a letter saying, You got to sign Steve Garvey. You got to do it. And he wrote me back, goes, uh, We're in negotiations. I'm going to do whatever I can to get it done. I still have yeah. that letter. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I could have swore that at one point within 24 hours, you know, I was going to be a cop. Things had progressed to that much. And I'd always loved playing at Wrigley and, and was thinking in terms of, gosh, you know, maybe with another couple of acquisitions, the Cubs could uh, put it all together. And, you know, with irony, they ended up having a great season in 84, but just ran into um, to my Padre team that put it all together with three games at home. Can you still envision the pitch from Lee Smith? 
<laughs> well, you know, he had, I, I didn't have much luck against him. I think I faced him eight times and struck out six. It seemed like every time I faced him, it was in the shadows at Wrigley at 4.30 in the afternoon. And uh, I didn't think he was going to fool around with me. And the first pitch was a running fastball away. Um, Tony Glenn had let off the inning with a single. And I thought, well, he's got to come back, you know, with another fastball. And I was out of the plate. And I, you know, I was a pretty good center to right field hitter and uh, hit through it. And as it went up, I, I thought it had a chance. And uh, I'm getting the first base. And I look and I see Henry Cotto climbing the fence and leaping up. And I thought, oh, my Lord, the greatest catch in postseason history. <laughs> and uh, it landed about four or five feet, I guess, over his glove on the wall. And, and it was pandemonium after that. Growing up, you played football and baseball, and then you went to Michigan State. Did you ever think to yourself, you know what, maybe I should play football rather than baseball? Well, you know, when I, I played there, it was uh, 67, 66, 67. Uh, it was still, you know, a lot of running and maybe 15 passes a game. So I went there as a quarterback, but I played defense in high school, so I ended up a corner for Duffy Dory. And uh, every Saturday, you know, unless we played in Notre Dame or Houston, I was taking on, you know, 280, 300-pound pulling guards and tackles. So uh, by the time I get drafted by the Dodgers in the first round, I had to had to make an, what I call an IQ decision. Should I keep getting run over by these big guys or sign with the Dodgers? And it turns out to be a pretty <laughs> easy decision. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, you played high school ball in Florida. How does a guy not end up in the SEC and ends up, in the Big Ten, I didn't. I didn't well, know that, that those recruiters would let those guys out of the South. I know, but at that time, you got to remember it was, you know, '66 in that time, and and uh, it was just beginning to to uh, to be a philosophy of of uh, these colleges to have players be one dimensional, and uh, a lot of players played football and baseball, and a few played basketball and baseball. So I would say of the 25 offers, you know, 20 of 18 of them were just for one sport. So I had Florida State baseball, Florida football, Miami baseball, Auburn football, and um, but I had a pitching coach at my high school who had played for Danny Litwaller at Florida State, and Danny went on to Michigan State in 1965, I think. Right. So uh, he called Danny and he said, uh, "Got this kid down here that can play two sports, and he wants to play both, and you might be able to get him." And, they called me up, and my mother and I went up for a visit, and then Duffy Doherty, the great Irish coach, uh, got us cornered and charmed us, and I thought, let's see, I'm tired of losing eight pounds a game in Florida with humidity and heat, and uh, they say I can play two sports, and then Duffy said, listen, we got over 20,000 co-eds, you're bound to get a date on Friday night, so, so the stars aligned in the Midwest, and, and I ended up going there. Were you in that great game in 66 with Notre Dame and Michigan State? I was, you know, it was the closest to not actually taking the field because I was a freshman. And during the week, I played Terry Henratty in, uh, in practice uh, because I, I played at a school in Florida that was very similar to their offense. And Bubba Smith and those guys just beat the heck out of me for four days and uh, and I was on the sidelines, you know, for that game, and it was the hardest-hitting game I'd ever seen. And, of course, it ended in a 10-10 tie, but I, I, I was pleading with the guys, please win this one. I've sacrificed my body all week long. <laughs> Just win this game. And then to see uh, Air Force Asian kind of run out the clock, and 
then go to USC next next week and win, I think, 51 or 54 to nothing to win or at least share the uh, national championships. When you got drafted by the Dodgers, what went through your mind? Well, you know, the story goes back to the spring of 1956, and I'm growing up in Tampa, and my dad's working for Greyhound, and he and my mom had been from New York, and dad was a Brooklyn fan, mom was a Yankee fan, and he comes home in late March of 56, which was Grapefruit League exhibition time, and, and he sat down at the table, and I was the only child, so I'm sitting there, and he looks at me and says, you want to skip school tomorrow? Yeah, what are we going to do, Dad? He says, well, i got a charter tomorrow to pick up the Brooklyn Dodgers from the Tampa airport and take them to St. Pete to play the Yankees in an exhibition game. And I think it might be a, a fun day for you and I. So I looked at him and I said, can I be excused? And he said, why? So I ran into my room and I just started collecting baseball cards. And I had a, I had a Reese and I had a Snyder and a Ferrello and a Hodges and a uh, Jackie Robinson and came back and he said, well, let me tell you about these guys. So he told me about each one of them. Of course, Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. And, and he said, you know, tomorrow's going to be a special day. He says, so you dress nice. Well, I got my best blue jeans and a kind of a Dodger blue band line shirt. We got up the next morning, got the bus, drove to the tarmac of the airport and about um, at 8.15, 8.30, the, uh, the Dodger plane, the KO Mally 1 landed and it taxied up and there were no concourses back then. They pushed the ramp up and the door opened and off came Walter Olson, the great manager and these great Dodgers who had beaten the Yankees the previous fall in 55. And uh, my dad and I were standing in the front of the bus and I got my little butch waxed flat top at the time and they would come by and the guys would kind of pat me on the head they couldn't believe it was sticking that straight out <laughs> and then finally the last two guys were Campanella and, and Robinson and they, and they stopped and and uh, Jackie Robinson looked at me and said you like baseball son and I had my mitt you know on my belt I said yes sir he said well you, you work hard and maybe someday you'll be a Dodger and I kind of nodded and then uh, Roy Campanella just came off his third MVP, uh, looks at my dad. And he, my dad had this Greyhound name tag, Joe. And he says, uh, Joe, he says, you a pretty good student? My dad said, yeah, you know, not bad. Well, I was the worst for year in class. You know, I, I, I was hyper. You know, I probably had ADHD, but nobody used that term back then. And, uh, and he said, but we're working with him. You know, every night we work on his reading. And Roy said, well, that's good. And he looks at me and he says, well, son, you can practice all you want. But you got to be able to think on that field. And he said, Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Campbell. And they patted me on the head and got on the bus, and the rest is history. I bat boarded for the Brooklyn Dodgers that day and fell in love with the team. And then, of course, about 12 years later, out of Michigan State, I get drafted by them, and 15 years in L.A. and another five in San Diego, and I have a very long and blessed career. Did your dad forgive him for leaving Brooklyn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. But... uh you know, it was inevitable, just as things are in this new millennium and changes in the game that, you know, a team or two is going to eventually go west and uh, set up shop on the West Coast. And but, but Walter O'Malley was very shrewd, and he was always fighting with Horace Stone, who was the owner of the Giants. And and uh, O'Malley sneaks out to the West Coast, and, and he knew that L.A. was a bigger market, bigger business center, and he, he does a deal with the uh, the quietly with the fathers here in Los Angeles and, and the Union Oil to build a stadium. And he comes back and he he uh, coyly at, at a lunch tells a couple of his buddies that, uh, you know, he's really looking at San Francisco. He really thinks San Francisco would be great for the Dodgers. Well, he knew that they were going to sneak and tell Stoneham. So that's when Stoneham 
hears about it, gets on a plane, goes to San Francisco, does a deal with the uh, San Francisco fathers there in the council, and they coerce him to go out to this cold, windy point called Candlestick, <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. But O'Malley was so shrewd because he knew he needed you know, another team out there, and why not his fiercest competitor? And so he had that Dodger-Giant rivalry on the West Coast. And, uh, right. and it's just it's a much longer story, but it, it tells a lot about how, how wise and smart O'Malley was. Yeah, I mean, one team out there just, just doesn't do it. And to have the arch rival maintain that the New York City rivalry on the West Coast. Yeah. You know, Can't that, beat it. No. <laughs> yeah. You didn't spend much time in the minor leagues. What, what was your minor league experience like? Well, after, uh, after a, a, a very good uh, sophomore spring at Michigan State, I won All-American Honors. And the Dodgers drafted me in the first round. Um, uh, I had the choice either to stay in the Florida State League with Daytona Beach or uh, I'll go to Ogden, Utah. And Guy Wellman, who uh, lives in Downers Grove and a great gentleman, one of the greatest scouts in not only Dodger but baseball history, was there to sign me in Tampa. And, uh, and he said, well, I think, I think we want you to go to Ogden. There's a manager there that's uh, good with young guys and uh, energetic and this might be a good place for you. Well, it turned out to be Tommy Lasorda. And that draft had Bobby Valentine and Bill Buckner and Tom Kishorek and uh, Say and Lopes and uh, Charlie Huff and arguably one of the great drafts in history. And we all go out to Ogden and, and we have a short season, uh, a 60-game schedule, and we win the, the uh, Pioneer League for Lasorda. And, and we learn what it's all about to be a professional and, and have a guy that's uh, – that's up 100% of the time, <laughs> and 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 uh, and telling him that you got to bleed Dodger blues. So that first summer was quite an education for all of us. Guys. Were th- were there many uh, Italian restaurants for Tommy to go to in Ogden? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was one buffet that we still talk about today. <laughs> it was uh, it was 99 cents, and most of the time. Uh, Tommy got the manager to comp four or five of the uh, of the dinners for his favorites, like Valentine Buckner and I. We used to go say, Tommy, it's a dollar for the buffet. We don't mind. You know, we get three dollars a day meal. Right. <laughs> you can pack it the rest. Keep your money. Keep your money. It's it's principal here. You know, we're coming in. But it was a wonderful summer, and then the next year I I uh, spent about seventy games at Albuquerque Double A because in my contract with the Dodgers I had that I would go back. Um, and complete my my year at Michigan State, and, and just take the two weeks for Easter break and go to spring training. So I go to go to Albuquerque, which was Double A, then Texas League, and play seventy games there. And then uh, the next spring, spring I kind of win the third base job. And though it was a rocky year, I was up and down. So you know, I really played about two hundred minor league games, which is which is not a lot. And fortunately, at that time, the Dodgers needed hitting, and a bunch of us were coming up. Now, of that group, Bobby Valentine was probably one of the most heralded, and and he's the guy that didn't make it. Yeah. Well, you know, Bobby was. He was a great athlete, uh, all-American tailback out of Stanford, uh, Connecticut. Uh, was going to SC along with Bill Buckner and uh, and just had great tools. But, I, you know, as with anything, um, he had a series of injuries, and one of them probably was the turning point when he – Made a tremendous catch at, uh, when he was with the Angels and 
his cleat stuck into the tarp in center field, and he uh, he broke his ankle and tibia, and uh, never did quite come back from that. Even though he put in probably I think five, six, seven years, but he had tremendous talent. He's the, he's the first guy I ever saw that that literally scored, tagged up at second base on a fly to just normal center field and scored standing up. So I, you don't see that very often. No. Uh, but we had, we had, and, and a lot of those guys went on to play in Spokane in 70 when I was up and down. And that team was voted the greatest minor league team in the last 75 years. And we had, I believe, 11 guys along with Lasorda that played over 10 years in the majors. So that team uh, was a phenomenal team also. But it was all part of the the Dodger way to play baseball and, and, and how much we really worked on fundamentals and, and the keys to the game. What was Walter Alston like as a manager? Um, you know, Hall of Famer in many ways. He wasn't uh, wasn't loud and demonstrative, you know, and uh, kind of like you know Tommy was, but he was quiet. He watched. Uh, when he said something, you listened because he never minced words. So he he was going to tell you something was going to help you be a better ball player. And he only had a few rules, you know, get the, get in on time, don't stay out too late, get the signs and run run hard and play hard in every play. And he taught us how to be men, really. So the, that, that first seven years of my career, I had Walt and then Tommy took over in 77 and I had him until I went to, uh, to San Diego. And then I played for Dick Williams, who ended up in the Hall of Fame. So I, I uh, was blessed to play for three Hall of Fame managers. Yeah. I, I remember Walter Alston. I, I can't think of a handful of times that he would have left the dugout to argue. He was sort of the polar opposite of a Lasorda. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to waste time going out there. He always believed that unless in his heart, he knew that the umpire had, had made a mistake. Um, and even then, when he went out there, once in a while he'd get thrown out, but it was it was a purpose throwout. You know, he went out there to get the team going and have us look at him. Look, look at the skipper. You know, he's right. really mad. But he right. was six three and extremely strong, and, and he always had the respect of the umpires. And actually, when he went out there, mostly the umpires, you know, felt like they were going to get a, a paternal lecturing about <laughs> whether they were out of position, didn't see it properly. Uh, or, you know, were they a little biased, you know, and so forth. So, um, and when Tommy went out, Tommy would run out there and he was chewing tobacco and a lot of juice would come out. You know, I can't tell you the number of times he got thrown out in the minor leagues, quite a few in the major leagues. But, you know, we're in the entertainment business. And uh, and Tommy was uh, was the great entertainer. And, and Walt was more of the professor that... Uh, that put these teams together and manage them to world championships, as as did Tom. There, there are different ways to get to the uh, uh, the fall classic and to win it, and both of those guys showed that you know their method works. As a rookie, you accomplished something that I think very few have, and that is you had a Vitalis ad. And for those people who don't know Vitalis, it was a hair grooming product like Wild Root was, like Bro Cream was. How did you land that so early in your career? Other You're kind of a, a greaseless, greaseless groomer, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, other than having a good head the of hair. Line. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, at, at, in 70, like I mentioned, I, I somehow win the third base job in spring training. Got a chance to go on a couple trips and got in and got hits, and all of a sudden one thing led to another, and now I'm 
I'm the third baseman, and the team's still not very good, but uh, they figure, well, let's take a chance on these two kids. Bill Buckner was the other one. And um, we're going to open the season uh, at home. And uh, three days before, we're at Dodger Town, or four days before, and Red Patterson, the great publicist, comes up and he says, you want to do a commercial? I goes, wow, yeah, what is it? He said, well, it's Vitalis. And I had used Vitalis, and you know, most, most guys did. So they're going to shoot it uh, the day before the season opens in L.A., and he says, uh, you're their guy. That's great. <laughs> so I get to the, the stadium at 9 in the morning the day before, and we're going to play the Angels that night. We used to have a freeway series. And the director and producer out there, and, and they say, okay, we want you to lead off first and, and slide head first in the second. Make sure your helmet comes off. And Pete Rose, who was playing second, then is going to catch the ball, tag your head, and the umpire is going to call safe, and then Pete's going to say, but Harry, Harry Wendell said the umpire, <clears throat> you know, feel the glove, and Harry's going to feel the glove in my hair, and he's going to go, kid, you're out of here. And then I walk to the dugout, and there's Maury Wills with, a bottle of Vitalis. He goes, kid, if you want to make it in the major leagues, you got to use the greaseless groomer, Vitalis. <laughs> so, um, so we, you know, I lead off, and uh, Pat Corrales is the catcher, and there's the pitch and throw down, and it's a high one. So Pete jumps up, and I slide in head first, and he comes down, and his foot lands on my right hand, okay. and I thought, oh my lord! And the spikes actually went between my fingers, and he just landed on a flush, and I got up, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm afraid to look, and I looked, and nothing was, you know, cut or anything, and um, the director goes, you know, all right, let's do it again. I'm thinking, oh, here it is. I'm going to start for the first time ever tomorrow night, and I'm almost getting my fingers chopped off for a Vitalis commercial, and uh, and the next one was, uh, was perfect, and uh, Pete, of course, delivers his lines, and Harry does his, and, and, uh, and, we're all set, and again, and the director says, "Well, let's do another one." And we all look at him. We go, "That's as good as it gets." And I said, "That's it for me. I'm not risking my hands again." <laughs> so he goes, "Okay, he checks. We got in the can." Now the last scene is me walking up to Maury Wills, and I say to the director, "Well, what are my lines?" He said, "Well, son," he said, "You're not going to have any lines in this one." He said, you, "This is method acting. You're going to look at Maury. We're going to show you. You're going to shake your head in that little chagrin, and you go into the dugout." I said, are you sure you don't want any lines? He looked at me and he says, son, we're paying you. We don't want <laughs> So if he, I, the commercial is actually on YouTube. You know, if you go on there, okay. Harvey Vitalis, it'll come up. But that was my uh, baptism into uh, the commercial world. Were you a better third baseman than Ron, say? <laughs> yeah. oh, uh, Ronnie, you know, turned out to be an exceptional third baseman. And, and if Mike Schmidt wasn't around, he probably would have won some gold gloves. But, uh, um, you know, I was very athletic at third. Uh, I caught everything, but I had a shoulder separation in Michigan State playing football. I never quite threw the same again. So I got to every ball, but then it was, um, you know, watch out. <laughs> Who knows where it's going to go? Of course, I had a great first baseman in uh, West Parker, but uh, he couldn't live. He couldn't even jump 20 feet in the air. So uh, eventually, you know, Ron comes up in 73, and, and he solidifies the position. And I'm a guy without a position. I'm really kind of the 24th guy on the team. And, and all I'm doing is pinch inning early in the year, and they tried being left. And of course, I've got a pretty short arm for an outfielder. And uh, one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, I'm leading the league in pinch inning on June 23rd of 1973. And 
we lose the first game of doubleheader against Cincinnati, who were our, our big rivals at that time. And I'd gotten one of the two hits, pinch hit. And Walter Alston, uh, that same manager that came off the plane when I was seven, uh, starting to walk by me in the clubhouse and he stops and he looks at me and says, hey kid, you ever play first? And I looked at him and I said, oh sure, skipper. Well, I played <laughs> one game in little league and one game in triple A. I had a, had a bad hamstring. That counts. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he says, well get a glove and get out there and don't trip over the bag and get a couple of hits. He said, we'll have trouble against lefties and see what you can do. So I, uh, I borrowed a glove and went out and grabbed a bat boy and tossed with him and told him to throw a couple at my feet and, I uh, went out and got a couple of doubles, and Doug went out of the dirt and came off the bag and tagged uh, a runner, and we won the game. And, you know, it's a moment in your life, and the, there may be one of them, two of them, or periodic, where you have this great satisfaction that you've done something that you didn't anticipate, but you, you made a commitment, you saw it through. And uh, I'm sitting there, and, and Austin comes by, and he doesn't even look at me, he just says, you're in there tomorrow. And I look up, and he, and he turns back, and he smiles, and that was the beginning of, uh, of really my uh, my first base career, the beginning of the infield coming together that uh, it stayed together for almost nine years. And, and I look back, and I do a lot of motivational speaking, and I always say, you know, there are moments in our lives where we just have to take a chance. And uh, at that moment, I said, oh, absolutely. If I had said, no, you know, I've never played there uh might not be with you guys today. You know, it might not have worked out, but uh, I did, and the rest is history. And you win a gold glove your first full year at first base. Yeah, and I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, being kind of a two-sport guy, and being a defensive back, you know, footwork, and having good eye-hand coordination and being aggressive. And uh, I won four straight, and um, and ironically, uh, in that left-handed first baseman, uh, uh, Hernandez came around, and and then 84, I go a whole season with a hair, I don't want to go in gloves. So <laughs> I think it's subjective sometimes, but uh, uh, those four golden gloves are very dear to me, and I'm, I'm very honored to have earned them. Who has better hair, you or Keith Hernandez? Better hitter? Better hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, both dark, you know. Um, but you know, I always said if it, it, you know, it, would you, people always say, "What would you do differently?" And I would, I always say, it would have been easier as a left-handed first baseman. There are just more plays naturally that uh, that work for a left-handed first baseman. And then I think about it for a second, and I look at the interviewer or whomever, and I said, "But you know what? I'm not going to try it over again just to be a left-handed first baseman." <laughs> I said, "Everything worked out pretty well. I'll, I'll take that career." Yeah. 1974 All-Star Game, you were. A write-in starter. Last time that that's happened, probably it never will ever again. How gratifying was that? Well, it was um, to to earn that first base position, you know, throughout the rest of '73, and then um, start out in '74 and get a good start. And the uh, numbers are in the top ten in several categories, and the team's doing well and. There's a groundswell that starts in uh, Tampa, Florida, my hometown, uh, to write in my name. And when it's all said and done, I have over a million, you know, write-in votes, and I get to start the game. And uh, even though I had the mumps five days before the uh, the actual game, and was able to get out of bed and go out there and win the MVP, and uh, that was my first big moment in uh, in baseball, and and one that's so very special because of the way I got there in the first place, and then. Um, 
took a lot of pride in being able to push myself through it and one thing leading to another and of course my first two at bats I get hits and now it's the it's the bottom of the fifth inning I think and uh and Yogi Berra who's a manager was gonna just take me out after two at bats and uh he says, Well kid, you know, great job, we're gonna get you out of here and I said, you know, Yogi, who you gonna put in? He says, Well, I put in Perez, and uh, I said to him, "Why do you use Perez for pinch as a pinch hitter?" And he says, uh, and he looks at me, he goes, "Well, Stargell then." And I said, "Well, he, you know, he got a hit, and you ran for him." And then he looks at me and goes, "Anybody else?" I said, "No." He says, "Well, you're in there the whole game." <laughs> <laughs> so I was the only guy to play the whole game for both teams, you know, on both sides, and end up winning the MVP. And it was probably the sickest uh, going into that game than, than anybody else, but. Uh, that was a, a true yogiism, you know. <laughs> this guy, that guy, nah, maybe left, nah. Yeah, it was fun. One of your accomplishments was an incredible consecutive game streak. Now, people think, okay, all he's got to do is show up at the ballpark every day, but it, it's not as simple as that. One, you have to be healthy, and two, if you're not healthy, you, you have to be healthy enough to get on the field and perform. How daunting it was that, that entire experience? Well, I had finally gotten traction in my career. I won the MVP. I had solid years in you know, 75, 76. Um, but I always wanted to play everything of every game. You know, I, I I never wanted to be Wally Pipped, as they say, <laughs> you know, with Carrick. And uh, so I loved playing. And, and uh played with hairline fractures and migraine headaches and this and that, but um, when it was all said and done, that seven and a half years there, 1,207 games, which is a National League record and fourth uh, all time, uh, is something that I've really taken a lot of pride in. It's right up there with winning a, a world championship as far as you know, accomplishments. So um, it's not easy, and, and, and like you said, you got to be ready every day. You got to get out there. You got to avoid serious injury, but more importantly, you got to perform. So. I think during that 74 to probably 83 period there, I, I was as consistent as anybody, and I think that's one of the reasons why at times where maybe Lasorda could have taken me out, but he was gracious enough to ask me, and I said, I think I can go out and still perform, you know, with this bad hamstring or my fingers, you know, going a little different direction here. Uh, and he let me make the decision. So I always uh, give Tommy credit and, and Walter Alston for the beginning of it. Was it 78 championship series, you think, your best championship series? Oh, I, yeah. I, I put it all together. And, and uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate to have, I think, very good Elsie guesses. And, um, and then that batting, I think, 350-something, 360. Uh, and then once it got to the World Series, all of a sudden I didn't see quite see those pitches anymore. <laughs> Which is understandable, but uh, that '78 uh, NLCS was was probably my best. '74 was, you know, was my baptism. '77 um, was pretty good, also, but eventually ended up with the first of the Yankee, the two back-to-back Yankee losses, and of course Reggie with his three home runs, and you know what I call the classic World Series: Yankees Dodgers. Yeah. Um, but then to get a chance again in '81 and and beat the dreaded Yankees and finally win a world championship was kind of pretty much the icing of the cake of that, what we call that golden era from 73 to, to uh, 82. Yeah. Now, when I was a kid growing up in St. Louis, I thought the World Series was between 
Brooklyn and New York. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't until right. Milwaukee, until Milwaukee won that, oh, oh, somebody else can be in it. So, it, I mean, it's yeah. a, a, a longstanding World Series history. Yeah. How, but how the Cardinals, you know, arguably too with, uh, uh, with the Dodgers and the Yankees, uh, you know, three of the greatest organizations ever. So I think you saw a lot of victories there. And then yeah. I would say over the last 15 years, the Cardinals have done a tremendous job also. Number six, was that, has that been your number ever since you were a youngster? Or how, how did you end up with that? No, I was, uh, gosh, 14 in high school and 10 at Michigan State. And then I wore a five at uh, Ogden. And uh, when I got up to uh, the Dodgers on September 1st, 1969, they called me up with a few of the other guys for the month. Uh, Nobi Kawana, the, the great clubhouse man for the Dodgers, been there a long time. Had remembered me as a bat boy and uh, and gave me a low number and gave me number six. So I, I knew that Carl Farillo had won that number and Ron Fairley had won it uh, nobly in Los Angeles before me, and I was very honored to have gotten that number. I still remember that 1981 season. Ten, was my 10th birthday's coming up, and I said, I got to see my favorite team, the Dodgers, play with Steve Garvey. And I said, Dad, we got to go. He said, Okay, you can take the kids in your class of 10 boys. What game do I pick? Fernando Valenzuela's first game coming to Chicago when he was undefeated. And my dad goes, Dave, I'm not going to be able to get tickets. I said, Dad, you promised. Somehow he, <laughs> somehow he managed to get tickets for that game, and all I remember is Mike Tyson hitting that home run. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was you know, an, an unbelievable time to watch Fernando go through that streak that he had in the beginning of, uh, of 81 there. Um, but, you know, we... <laughs> We, we kind of feared uh, Wrigley Field because you never know if the wind was blowing in or out and day baseball and uh, all the things that happened there. I know one time at, at Wrigley we uh, we played 18 innings of uh, runless baseball, 0-0. Zero, zero. Uh, the last out in the bottom of the 18th, the ball was hit. I, I never saw it, and I just heard a thud and looked at uh, Steve Sackett's second base, and he was looking at his glove as if I can't believe it's in there. And then the next day we uh, we score in the top of the twenty first and win one to nothing. So you know that that's what happens at Wrigley. You know things like that happen. So uh, Fernando going in there was uh, you know we're, we're a little uneasy about that. They just broke that record yesterday for the longest game. They mentioned that Dodger game with the Cubs back in the early eighties. Yeah, yeah, and that the irony was that um, uh, Jerry Royce was going to start the uh, the game. You know, the, the, the next day, and uh, we went to 18 innings, and and uh, the continuation was going to start at noon. And uh, Tom said to Jerry, "Say you feel?" He says, "Oh, I feel good." He says, "Well, start this game. Let's see if we can get it over. And then uh, if we win, then you you're warm, and you can go out there and see what you can do." So he gave us three good innings. We score on a bang bang play at home plate with sacks, and uh, 30 minutes later, Royce goes out and. I think he does five and two thirds, and we won that one. So he won. He won two games in one day. Not bad. Yeah. Who was the toughest pitcher you ever faced? Well, I was fortunate to I think face twelve or thirteen Hall of Fame pitchers, and obviously twice that many that were very, very good. But uh, I always say Phil Necro because he threw that very difficult knuckle ball, and he didn't know where he was going. The catcher didn't know where he was going, and you're supposed to hit it. So. Um, I was more of a guesstimator as a hitter. I used to watch patterns and pitchy deliveries and, and situations, and I could pretty well 
stiff to me 80, 85% of the time what's coming. But the knuckleball, you just threw it up there, and depending on how humid it was or where the wind was blowing, um, it's a little, little difficult. Did you guys have the best food in your clubhouse when Tommy Lasorda was the manager? <laughs> that's a good question. We ate, we got the best Italian food, that's for sure. <laughs> you played with some Hall of Famers, and you also encountered another Hall of Famer on a daily basis in broadcaster Vin Scully, who, who just decided that he he wants to do another season in 2015. Yeah, what's what's it like to be interviewed by Vin Scully? Well, you know, he's the consummate professional, and, and if you were to listen to him, you you never hear we or us. Uh, you hear an announcer who paints a beautiful verbal picture on a on a palette from the beginning to the end, and and um, fills in with wonderful, you know, little snippets of stories and little longer stories sometimes, but insight. And um, you know, he's just been, you know, the uh, the Pope of uh, the Dodger Airways for all these years, and. You know, as long as he wants to go on the air, the uh, the more we get this jewel of a man and a voice to talk about your baseball. What was Jackie Robinson like? Did you get to meet him a lot of times? You know, I saw him twice. Uh, that day I was a bat boy the first one, and he, he literally sat on top of me on the bench, you know, and he apologized, and I'm thinking, and Mr. Robinson, that's okay. <laughs> you can sit on my lap. I, I got a great story for show and tell tomorrow. In school, uh, and then I met him one more time. But uh, you know, always a gentleman, and, and, and arguably the man that really changed the face of, of segregation and integration in our society in the, uh, the last half of the 20th century. Then you also saw another historic moment in '74 when Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record. What was that like? Well, you know, he had uh, he got close. He got 714 uh, in Cincinnati. And we go into Atlanta, and there was this great anticipation and tremendous number of press there. And uh, Al Downing, who was pitched him quite well, was on the mound that night and uh, got behind, and the ball took off. And I thought, uh-oh, this looks like it has enough. This that Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta was a really hitter's ballpark. And then I see Bill Muckter climbing the fence, and I knew it was it. And by the time I, I wanted to turn around and shake his hand, he was already even with me and had gone by. And then I saw poor Buck get out hustled by Tom House, the relief pitcher for the Braves, uh, to get the ball. And uh, and that was the moment. And then, of course, you sit there and you absorb, you know, what's happening with the crowd and the fireworks and the magic of this historical moment. And it was, it was great to be on the field that day. At what point did you decide to become a motivational speaker? Um, let me just back up one second. I, I was pretty fortunate to have a great seat for a number of events. One was, uh, the other one was Pete Rose's, uh, um, breaking hit and Reggie Jackson's three home runs in the World Series. So I've had a great seat for these baseball games in both history. Uh, but they've always, um, also been a source of, um, of, um, comments and, and, and injections into my speeches as, uh, as individuals who are able to um, to transcend the passion for the sport and the commitment to sport by rising to an occasion to do something that is truly historical, and uh, you know, guys like you know Aaron and Rose and and Jackson are in the Hall of Fame for a reason. In fact, they they did these things more often than most, and uh, and they led their teams to championships. 
Why are you not in the Hall of Fame? I still understand that. I mean, you had 10 All-Star games, the four gold gloves, the MVPs. It just doesn't make sense. Well, I, I hope so. I, uh, you know, I've been on the veterans' ballots uh, for a while now, and I got more votes than any player uh, this past December. Of course, the three managers went in. Uh, I'll be up again uh, December of 2015, and I, I hope at that time that finally the uh, the voters and there's a there's a uh, population of about 16 uh, men and women now uh, will finally start to put in some of these. Uh, Players in my category, uh, like a Dave Parker and so forth, that uh, they really deserve to be in. I mean, the, the numbers and their contribution during their time uh, really signify that they they should be uh, included and go through the gates at, at Cooperstown. There, uh, but we just have to wait and see. I think about the whole voting process now, dealing with the with the steroid era, makes it very very complicated. But this veterans era and the special one from I think seventy to ninety. This one that could uh, could allow you know a few of us in there and to be great for the hall and great for us. Well, and the statistical inflation that's occurred since your playing days, you know, people can say, oh, he only had this many home runs, or you know, what whatever they want to look at. There's there's no comparison that a home run was much more difficult to hit when you were playing than it is nowadays. Well, I think the, uh, the key is that uh, each era inherently has its, a different style to it. Uh, the ball may be livelier, it may be dead better. Um, you know, but that era in itself, you have to look at uh, the top players and pitchers and teams and, and the numbers and what they did. And when you start to compare my era with the following era in steroids, then it becomes very convoluted. And uh, what happens is you start to lose writers like the Dick Youngs and and writers like that who pass away who saw you play, where the younger writers didn't and simply go by the numbers. And, and there's a dramatic difference uh, in the steroid area by the numbers that were put up. So you really, I think it's important to stay within within a generation and look at the numbers, look how the player contributed to his team, how his team um, you know, contributed to baseball, and, uh, and I think it was pretty significant to Dodgers and in my era back in you know seventy three to eighty eight. Another guy who's forgotten is a former uh, Cardinal, Reggie Smith, who had great numbers, but again, he's people forget about him. Yeah, and and once you don't get five percent of the vote the first time you're on with the uh, baseball writers, then you you're you're off for good. So you really have to. Get a little traction right from the beginning and try to sustain it. And, um, you know, I have always thought if a, if a guy doesn't make it in this first couple of years, then how can he make it, you know, 14 years later? <laughs> Except through the grace of God and, and through, uh, finally writers, uh, having a realization that they've overlooked a player. And a lot of times there's themes that go on in voting, but, um, I seem to think that the voting is going to start to change somewhat. They've already gone from 15 years to 10 on the ballot. And uh, I'd just like to see the, the Hall of Fame start to be a little more uh, inclusive instead of exclusive, because if you look at the NBA and NFL, it probably each year when they put in four or five guys, all of them really deserve it. So and I, I think that could be uh, the same case for, for uh, baseball and Cooperstown. Yeah. Well, I... I think what's cruel is, you know, 
there should there should be veterans going in every year rather than okay we'll wait we'll meet every couple of years or so nobody's getting any younger that I know of yeah well that's true and and um and you know you you start to see the the managers get in right away and and uh and I do think you're right when we joke about veterans uh time does march on. <laughs> and it's nice to, if if you do have a chance, and through the grace of God, you're put in that you get a chance to, to um, to be a, a, you know, a foot soldier and a spokesman for the hall and, and for baseball. I always pictured you managing. Do you ever think to yourself, you know what, I want to be the next Walter Alston or Tommy Lasorda? Well, I, I've I've always been I've always had more of an inclination to the uh, the business side and. Uh, a couple of years ago, when the Dodgers were bankrupt and, and for sale, I put a group together, and and uh, when I do lecture, it, it's uh, and people ask me about it. I, I say one of the great accomplishments of my life was was raising 1.4 billion dollars, and then I pause and say, but I, we lost by 700 million. <laughs> so, uh, but it's it makes a statement. You 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 really at the end of the day I can't overcome the resources of the hedge fund and. And I applaud Guggenheim. They did a great campaign. Came up with 2.15, and and they looked at the numbers for uh, the next cable television deal, which you know that contract was 8.3 billion for 25 years. And of course, they're struggling now because they're having problems getting it on uh, all of cable, meaning Directv or Cox. Uh, so you know they did their numbers, and I applaud them. And the team's in in pretty good shape. You know they're paying 200. Thirty million this year for salaries, so they better win. <laughs> you could, if you go a little farther south, you could probably pick up that team for under a billion. The Padres. Yeah, the Padres were purchased uh, by some by some members of the Seidler and O'Malley family. Uh, uh, Peter O'Malley, Walter O'Malley, and you could probably be the was involved in uh, the Seidlers, so they they have a majority ownership down there. It's a little different market, uh, a little more difficult down there. They don't. Uh, uh, I don't own the stadium and, and you know, some of the parking, so it's a, it's a different equation. But uh, every time you go down to Petco, I, I just love it and uh, love the people down there and had, had a great five years. And, you know, I would uh, be more than willing to help them if they ever need it. And with the Padres' lack of hitting, you could either be their starting first baseman or at least a pinch hitter. And one of you guys is going to have to run for me, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I, I if they bring in be... a designated runner from home plate, you know, I'm back. I can still hit the right. Well, I, I, my son Ryan is with the Rocky organization uh, now, and he, he's in his second full season playing for the Tri-City team in the Northwest. So um, he and my 15-year-old's going to be a sophomore in, uh, in high school. The Garvey guys that can run now. And have a good arm. So it's fun to watch. How many home runs could you have hit in Colorado? Oh, Lord. You know, um, they're doing a bobblehead tomorrow night of the, the four of us that hit 30 home runs in a season for the first time. Say and Baker and Smith and myself. And we always kid around. If we played in uh, Denver, we would have been the first four to hit 40 in one season. So, Maybe uh, 50. But that was quite an accomplishment. Yeah, quite an accomplishment. But, um and the bobbleheads, you know, they, they even look like us, which is, which is nice. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have former Philadelphia Philly and Chicago White Sox great Greg Lezinski. You listen to Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 